0: Hello and welcome! You're listening to EPIC Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua and I'm Grayson. The date is March 13th, 2018. And this is episode 14, Check Yourself, an Organizational Resilience Maturity Model.
1: In this episode, we'll be discussing the concept of resilience as it applies to organizations interested in comprehensive emergency management. What does it mean? How do you measure it? And how does an organization know if they are resilient or not?
0: To this end, we will be speaking with Doug Grant, an emergency manager who has been developing a matrix to help measure organizational resilience and identify steps to achieving a higher level of overall resilience.
1: All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian.
0: Well, if you're familiar with disaster management at all, then you'll be well acquainted with the term resilience and the many, many, many meanings it brings with it. Uh, although the concept of resilient infrastructure, systems, and communities has been around for years, in the past decade or so, it's really taken off as the mystical end state for emergency managers. And there's been a decided shift from disaster resistance to the disaster resilience. So much so, in fact, that the most recent version of the Emergency Management Framework for Canada got rid of all references to disaster resistance, opting for a description of resilience, which refers to the capacity of a system, community, or society to adapt to disruptions and hazards. One
1: of the common critiques of this concept of disaster resilience, however, is linked to the many different definitions and meanings it's collected since its introduction in the disaster management sphere. For example, the capacity to recover quickly from
0: difficulties. Bouncing back. Bouncing build forward. Build back better. A set of
1: capacities the capacity that can of a system, community, society, and policies, close to hazards, to 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 or society seems to hazard to adapt to certain types of hazardous changes.
0: Stop. That's too confusing. What does it
1: all mean? Uh, exactly. I mean the interesting thing about resilience is it's In some ways become a little bit of a buzzword in emergency management. Uh, One study in 2015, in fact, looked at all of the uh, current disaster articles referencing resilience, and they found about 675 of them, but found that only 17 of them actually talked about how to operationalize the concept. So a lot of theory, but we're still just at the beginning of translating that theory into usable knowledge for the frontline professional.
0: So with this information overload, how do you make sense of this term? And and how do you know if you're resilient or not? Well, without any further ado, I give you Doug Grant on a resilience maturity model for organizations uh, from an interview recorded March 8th, 2018.
2: Uh, so my name is doug grant i'm the senior emergency management consultant with calian which is a canadian professional services company um, i first met grayson in Row rhodes university when i was completing my master's of arts in disaster and emergency management and i'm also a certified emergency manager and an associate business continuity professional so today i'm here to talk about some work that we're doing in the area of resilience um, particularly making a maturity model that is an assessment tool that lets organizations determine their level of resilience and gives them actionable output outputs they can take to become more resilient over time.
0: Thank you very much, Doug, for joining us for this epic interview. Uh, before we begin, I would like to say we, we did go to school together, and I personally <laughs> remember your views on using the term resilience outside of the context of engineering. Mm-hmm. weren't weren't particularly amenable so uh, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about how your understanding of this concept of resilience evolved and how you came to arrive at the definition that you use in your project?
2: Sure um, so at the time I think we were both fairly new to the idea of emergency management and disaster management and we were hearing constantly the you know stuff about resilience and resilient communities and resilient organizations. And there didn't seem to be a lot of concrete doctrine or instructions or best practices that went along with that. Um, It was, you know, I guess in 2013. So it was at a time when, you know, it was still kind of a fairly new term. And, um, you know, really, I didn't want to call it a buzzword, but I think there was some consensus that it was kind of the newest buzzword about emergency management. And there wasn't really a lot of substance there.
0: Yeah, I think everyone could recognize that it was important, but maybe there wasn't a whole lot of understanding that went into
2: it. Exactly. And my understanding of it, at the time, at least, was that resilience was kind of a term that was focusing on how to leverage all parts of a community or an organization and empower people. But there are wasn't really a lot of information that told people specifically how to do that. So um, over the course of my career, I've been kind of lucky enough to do different types of emergency management and jumped around. And I've started kind of thinking about it more and more. And, you know, I was it was at a time when I was hearing the term resilience, especially in the nuclear industry where I was working at the time. Um, you know, it was it was something that we were hearing a lot about. But again, it's just not really something that, you know, myself as an emergency management practitioner could really take and operationalize. So over time, I've been kind of thinking more and more about it and looking at the research that's out there. And I think there are ways that you can kind of operationalize this and have it be something that's usable by practitioners. But I think that, you know, the translation from kind of, I call it, quote, resilience, quote, to resilience is something that does require a lot of effort and a lot of further research and understanding of.
0: And this is something you've been working on. Uh, Can you give us a a bit of an overview of the project that you're undertaking?
2: Sure. So as part of my current job, um, some of my responsibilities are to help um, advance the field of emergency management in general. And one way that I'm hoping to do that is by coming up with kind of a resilience matrix or a maturity matrix where we can quantify and qualify the factors that make organizations and communities resilient and provide some level of guidance and help for individuals who are hoping to develop their ability to respond to emergencies and disruptions and ideally to make them um, able to progress and gradually become more resilient over time rather than just kind of say okay well you are resilient or you're not resilient and it's as simple as that so now we're currently putting together um, kind of a scoring system as well as some outputs that organizations or communities can use to self-assess and then the idea is that it'll eventually be kind of like a hira in that you know the HIRA methodology is everywhere and you know you kind of learn it like your first day on the job so to speak in emergency management but there's tons of different approaches to a Hira out there. So we're kind of developing this right now, but we're hoping to put it out into the broader community and then gradually have that be something that people can take and develop and apply and kind of run with and develop to a point where they can make it something that's usable by everyone, not just you know by one type of organization or one type of community.
0: So what factors do you consider when when you're looking at this matrix? So... I
2: kind of took the approach that for the most part, regardless of what type of organization you are, you probably need most of the same characteristics to be able to respond to a hazard effectively. So for me, I would say that that is six different areas. The first one is kind of governance and program management. The second would be the documentation associated with the program. So the plans you have in place or like a Hira or mutual aid agreements, um, the third would be communications, both internal and external. Um, the fourth would be training, exercises, and evaluation. The fifth would be kind of incident management or like incident command and the actual response functions within the organization. And the final one would be tools and resources, and that could be anything from kind of tactical response equipment to you know situational awareness software, command and control tools, or all that kind of stuff.
0: Okay, so let's start with governance. What do you look at and what makes up a resilient governance structure?
2: So, to develop these, we looked at a lot of different sources that are considered kind of best practices in different areas of disaster management. So, not just things like a CSA standard, but also, you know, British Standards Institute, documentation associated with business continuity and risk management and crisis communications. And overall, most of them agree that you need to have somebody in the organization who's the champion or somebody who can get the required resources in place and the attention for an effective emergency management program. So for governance, we're kind of taking the idea that you really need to have somebody in place for that. Um, You need to have a culture of risk management because regardless of how good your organization is, if they don't have a good risk management system and they're taking major like risks that they can't really respond to realistically, it's not really going to matter how good the program is. Um, you're going to need staff capacity, and maybe that's not you know a, a hundred full-time staff members. But regardless of what your situation is, you need to have sufficient staff members who have the time and attention to focus on your emergency management system in relation to the kind of hazards and risks that you are faced with on a daily basis. Um, The next, I would say, is probably just budget and project management. Um, I've seen many times when organizations have very smart, knowledgeable people in those kind of positions, but they just don't have the right kind of resources and they don't have the funding to make a lot of difference. And then the final one, I would say, would probably be um, following the right standards and legislation. So again, I mean, it's most organizations are primarily concerned with being compliant to the regulatory aspects. But if you have an organization that is primarily meeting those, but also going beyond that and looking at other standards out there, I think that is a major component of governments as well.
0: Are there any common mistakes that you see in different organizations approach to governance that might be a barrier to resilience?
2: Um. A while ago you had uh, Jack Lindsay on your program who uh, I've talked to quite a bit and he said that I think the quote was uh, the biggest risk to emergency management or the biggest challenge is senior management. (laughs) And I think that in a lot of organizations there is some truth to that. So I would say more than anything it's having emergency management staff who just don't have the authority to make decisions and make changes. Um, I think that is an approach that... You know, it ultimately, regardless of how good your team is, if they can't change the organization and can't change the culture, the impact that they're going to have is going to be
0: negligible. Yeah, having that authority and ha- having the budget to make things happen would certainly be helpful. Exactly. In those situations. You talked about yeah. key documents as an indicator of resilience. What what specifically are you looking at there?
2: Um, I think key documents to me is kind of the baseline documentation structures that you'd expect in a functional emergency management program. So having some kind of hazard identification and risk assessment, regardless of what you're calling that, but just something that documents the specific hazards and risks that your program is fundamentally focused on addressing. Um, Some kind of plans in place. And I know that there are tons of different types of plans and structures, but having something that at least documents kind of the clear roles and responsibilities of an organization who's going to be doing what and how they're going to respond. And then also kind of hazard-specific plans, I think, are really important as well. So, you know, folk, plans focused on kind of the most intensive and high-impact scenarios out there. And then I would also say kind of the the mutual aid side of things and the understanding that no organization can do things entirely on their own, but and at least having some kind of a structure in place that demonstrates how
0: they can work with other organizations out there. And in terms of communications, what are you looking for?
2: Um, We kind of broke it down into both kind of internal and external communications and public information. So the ability to share information effectively at all levels. And that doesn't mean all information. Um, My boss has a really good saying that I've kind of adapted, and it's the right information to the right people at the right time. And to me, that's almost more difficult than all of the information to all the people at all the time. Um, So having kind of a clear structure in place that outlines the types of information that need to go to which stakeholders and has effective mechanisms in place to get that information to them. Um, Next, I would say kind of resource coordination. And there is overlap between kind of some of these sections, but the idea that you need to be able to communicate effectively with people on the ground to get the right kind of information to your leadership to make decisions, there's lots of different ways to achieve that. But fundamentally, it really just means, you know, how do you know which people are doing what and who's focusing on what areas? And are you communicating that effectively both kind of up and down the chain of command? And then next, I would probably say um, the idea of crisis management and stakeholder engagement. And, you know, regardless of what your organization is, you want people to have trust and confidence that you're doing the right thing. And that is, you know, a very challenging focus, especially in today's world of social media. But there's a lot of organizations out there that just don't want to engage with the public. And I would say that, you know, at this particular time, that's not really going to be acceptable to most people. And if you don't do something to engage with the public or engage with the community, you know, ultimately that's going to turn against you, regardless of, you know, even if you aren't particularly sophisticated in that area.
0: So, so far, we've talked about governance, key documents and communications, uh, and those all seem to be things that would be specific to the organizational structure, uh, and not necessarily specific to how they manage emergencies. And when we're talking about resilience, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to talk about it without mentioning flexibility. And in these sort of right. constructs, how would you manage or measure flexibility of an organization?
2: So, you're right, and I think there are kind of two folds to this, or two parts to this. The first is that your organization, regardless of what it is, needs to have the underlying characteristics that allow it to function effectively, and those are often things that you figure out when an emergency is not happening. You know, it's kind of the day-to-day structure and management systems in place that will ultimately contribute to whether or not you are able to respond to an emergency. And the second one is kind of the actual... You know, emergency management, things have gone wrong. We need to react specifically to this and those kind of systems. So, in terms of how you measure kind of flexibility and empowerment, I think that there are metrics and kind of both sides of that that you can look at. The first I would say is um, Dr. Uh, Caballon from the conference board recently said that the opposite of resilience is rigidity. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So, Having kind of an emergency structure in place that is not just bound to, you know, completely rigid procedures and policies. I think it's important to have documentation that outlines in broad strokes how an organization is supposed to respond. But I've always been very much against the idea that you need to proceduralize every kind of action people will take. Because to me, that's so rigid that it's not going to allow you to respond effectively. But I think that you need to have a structure that supports employees and supports responders to respond to things based on their own judgment and what they're seeing. And I think that it's really important to make sure that if people are doing things in good faith and are taking actions based on what they think is going to be the best way to address the situation, given what they're seeing, being supportive of that, to me, is a good indicator of resilience. You know, having people terrified to make the wrong decision because they're afraid they're going to be penalized is a level of rigidity that I think is the opposite of resilience.
0: I really like that. I like how you equate flexibility with empowering people because inherently systems and processes are usually not flexible, while it's the people that are flexible and can have creative thinking. So I like how you built that. that Right. Idea. Um The second part of your your matrix seems to deal with that emergency response and when an emergency actually happens. Uh, Can you take us through some of the training, exercise and evaluation measurements that you have?
2: Sure. Um, So training and exercises and evaluations are something that I've seen a lot of both because of the nature of my current job and just because of the fact that I have spent a lot of time in organizations like critical infrastructure and nuclear where they're required to have really big exercises. You know, like there is not a lot of organizations out there that are required to have a comprehensive full-scale exercise on a you know very described basis so i've seen enough kind of exercise events at different levels that i think at this point i have a pretty good understanding of what makes an effective exercise and what makes effective training and the ways that and uh, what makes an effective evaluation process as well so the first thing I would say is kind of exercise program management, and it's similar to those kind of program structures we talked about earlier, but it's the the kind of documentation or the plans in place that say, these are the types of organizational exercises we're going to be doing. This is what separates one from another. You know, this is our definition of a drill versus a functional exercise. You know, these are the kind of um, exercises that we need to have at these kind of intervals. And something that just really has a solid roadmap in place for how and when and why organizations are going to be doing certain exercises. Um, The next, I would say, is kind of role-specific training. And, you know, obviously organizations have tons of different training in place. But for some reason, a lot of organizations out there don't provide their emergency staff members with the level of advanced training that you would kind of expect. So... You know, I think it's important for everybody to have a good understanding of what to do if there's a fire and the fire alarm goes off. But I think that if your community organization has, you know, a hazard and risk profile that requires a strong emergency management program, I don't think it's really acceptable to just say that, oh, yeah, we have all these EOC staff members and they're just going to learn by doing things and we're going to hope for the best. You know, I think at that point you really need to start establishing specific role training for everybody who is going to have an active role in an emergency. Um, The next I would say was kind of exercise control and the ability to actually track whether an exercise is doing what you want it to do. So it's pretty common right now to see the kind of clipboard approach where there's a guy walking around in an exercise and kind of taking notes and saying, yeah, this looks good to me, but it's fairly rare to see organizations do exercises where there's actually, you know, a formal monitoring and evaluation process, where people are saying, okay, these are the specific ep- exercise objectives that we're trying to meet and how are we going to be monitoring that? How do we actually know whether or not people have achieved their objectives? That's something that takes a lot of time and energy and I think it is critical to running good exercises because to me it's it doesn't make sense to spend a lot of money and, you know, take up this huge amount of time to plan a full-scale exercise without having a really in-depth evaluation process to make sure that you achieve what you were trying to achieve, um, and the last one to me would be the after-action review and corrective action process. So, you know, again, there's kind of that difference between lessons learned and lessons identified. I think we all can identify lessons that we, you know, want to take away from exercises and real events. But to me, learning them and actually implementing changes based on that is something that, you know, is really not as common right now. And, uh, you know, Grayson, as as you're currently a reservist, and I used to be a reservist, the example that I can kind of give is like after every exercise, we do an after action review, and it's always like the same points that come up. It's like, oh, we need to work on our communications. Oh, we need to, you know, work on our, um, you know, our coordination between the different sections. And the fact that those things come up, the same things all the time, you know, exercise after exercise, to me shows that we're not actually doing a great job of learning lessons. We're just kind of identifying them.
0: Yeah, I really like that idea of differentiating between lessons identified and lessons learned. As long as you don't take away my clipboard, you're saying the clipboard (laughs) approach was a little bit limited, and I can understand that, but uh, I don't know what I'd do without a clipboard.
2: Uh, the clipboards are still very important.
0: Now, the final two bits of your of your matrix were incident management and tools and resources. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So, incident management
2: to me is you know the idea of an incident command system type framework, and it doesn't necessarily need to be the incident command system, but just something that has a clear delineation between this is how our organization functions during daily operations. And this is how we function during a disruption or an emergency. And I think that the things that would make that up are kind of clearly defined roles and responsibilities. And again, ICS is a really great way to ensure that's in place. Um, Having some effective decision centers. So, you know, my organization has a board of directors for a lot of the uh, decisions that they make, but they have, you know, a specific structure that comes into place where we have people making decisions. That are going to impact the organization during a disruption Um, so that could be kind of an emergency operations center or you might hear it called some kind of a crisis management center but just the idea that there is both a structure and a kind of physical or now virtual location where people gather together to make decisions about the current situation Um, the next one i think kind of touches on what we were saying before but to me it's actually emergence behavior and you know, people are going to self-organize and respond and take actions during an emergency, whether you want them to or not. And it kind of ties in with emergency communications or crisis management. But the ability to have, you know, some level of control or ability to influence the kind of voluntary or emergent behavior and actions that people are taking during a disruption, you know, and whether or not you're going to be completely successful, you know, that doesn't really matter. But just kind of being able to influence the overarching response that people take, even if it's as simple as, you know, shelter in place or trying to communicate with people on social media who want to volunteer for sandbag filling. All that kind of stuff to me is something that I think is a growing focus in the field, but something that we still have a long way to go in. And um, to me, the final one would be actually flexibility again. So The idea that we can plan for specific hazards or specific risks and we can have contingency plans, but at the end of the day, you know, the people who are in charge of an emergency just need to be able to respond based on their own judgment and their own experience rather than purely relying on existing plans.
0: And the tools and resources you were talking about there.
2: Sure. Um, So the first one to me is response resources, which is really just kind of the, you know, Whether you're a fire department or you are, you know, police or you're just an organization that needs to make sure that you have um, regular fire drills and fire extinguishers, but being able to use and, you know, have in place the types of resources that you realistically, you know, have to expect that you would have access to in order to respond to an event. So that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody needs, you know, million dollar fire trucks, but just based on the type of organization you are and the type of things you might have to respond to, having sufficient gear and equipment to do that. Um, the next one would be situational awareness, and there's a lot of different ways you can get that, but having some kind of mechanism in place, again, to gather information from other sources. In some places, I've seen that actually be kind of CTEs. In others, it could be you know mining uh, Twitter and social media for information. Or it could just be as simple as having radios and knowing um, how to communicate with people in the field who are using kind of either phones or radios. Um, The next one would be kind of like resource tracking. So I think that, you know, obviously that's a big part of ICS. But being able to coordinate the actual physical resources that you put out into the field is something that, you know, ICS is really good at, but a lot of organizations, I think, struggle with. Um, and then the next, are, the next two actually are kind of linked together. One is redundancy and the idea that um, regardless of what kind of systems you have in place, that there is a, you know, a above average chance that you're going to be able to rely on them to function effectively in the event of an emergency or disruption. So that could be backup power or generators or uh, more kind of a business continuity approach to backup systems and servers And then the final one is infrastructure, which, again, could be, um, you know, depending on your organization, those kind of backup servers that you would expect to see in a bank. Or if you're in like a nuclear power plant, it could be some, you know, very intensive uh, structural mitigation and prevention measures that are designed to eliminate, you know, the vast majority of uh, potential disruptions before they could ever actually occur.
0: Great. So as I look through these key characteristics, like governance, documentation, communications, training, uh, incident management, and then these tools and resources that you're talking about, just from what you're seeing, it seems clear that you've built in a fair amount of flexibility in terms of what those might address. But in general, what sort of organizations is this matrix targeted at? What sort of uh, companies or organizations might benefit from putting this matrix to work?
2: So, again, you know, I, I've designed this based on my own experiences, and those experiences, um, I'll be the first to admit, are, for the most part, one specific type of organization. It's kind of a critical infrastructure or industry with, um, you know, kind of mid-size in terms of number of employees, so there's a good chance it could have several hundred to over a thousand employees Um, has sufficient resources to invest fairly heavily in emergency management, but also has kind of a hazard and risk structure and profile that would necessitate having a strong emergency management program. So, you know, again, this is one particular model that I think is useful for those kind of organizations. So um, nuclear power, transportation, uh, resource extraction, um, the aviation, you know things that you could really expect to see a comprehensive emergency management structure in place for. But that's not to say that this couldn't be adjusted to focus on other types of organizations. And I think a challenge with this with this that you know I'm probably not going to solve, but I hope that others could solve is how do you make this model applicable both to you know a nuclear power plant? and like a small town bakery. Um, Are these kind of overarching metrics that we're looking at going to be applicable to all types of organizations? And maybe it's just a matter of kind of looking at the the subcomponents of each section. And I don't really know the answer to that, but I think that this is something that somebody else who does have more of a background in other types of organizations could take and still use in a way that would allow them to develop something that would be useful for their kind of focus.
0: Yeah, I can see just through looking through through it that maybe not every category uh, matters as much to that small bakery versus the, the nuclear power plant. Uh, so certainly scalability would be would be great. I'm wondering, just based on that comment, though, is resilience the best outcome for any organization? Does resilience really apply to every single business or group out there?
2: Um I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who disagree with me on this. And again, I'm only looking at it through the perspective of hazards, but I would say it's not. Um, you know, if being resilient to hazards, to me, is something that requires a lot of energy and time and investment, and in many cases, a lot of resources and financial assets as well. And I think that's something that a lot of organizations are really going to struggle with. Um, So for us, like when we were developing this maturity model or this maturity assessment, we came up with different kind of levels associated with resilience. Because to me, resilience isn't binary. It's not a system where you either are or are not resilient. I think there's different aspects of that. And we kind of quantified them by saying that some organizations are going to be resilient, but Below that, there's different levels as well, such as like optimized or effective or at the lower end of the spectrum, basic. And the very bottom of that is vulnerable. So, you know, vulnerability is going to be something that is uh, contextual based on the type of organization you are. But at the same time, there's not going to be a lot of organizations out there that are entirely vulnerable or entirely resilient. So, you know, maybe resilience across the board, in every aspect that we just talked about is not going to be a great fit for your organization. But that being said, that doesn't mean that just because you're not resilient everywhere that you're automatically vulnerable. You know, you could be best in the world at training and exercises and be, you know, just okay at um, your risk management culture. And, you know, that to some extent kind of balances out and you're still doing pretty good if that's the case, you know, it's so, I don't think everyone needs to really focus on being entirely resilient. I think that it's worthwhile to say, you know, these are the things that are in place that are stopping me from being resilient, um, you know, and assessing whether or not you can actually fix some of those problems. But as long as you have an understanding of where you are in relation to where you need to be and you're working to develop over time, I think that's probably good enough.
0: So it, on that, is there a part two to this matrix? If you've gone through the matrix, identified your your gaps and weaknesses, is there something that this can offer in terms of correcting them?
2: Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, so we're releasing the documentation um, associated with this shortly. And each of those areas that we talked about has kind of um, a quantification scale in it that looks at what we would consider to be, you know, a resilient organization in terms of governance And then also, you know, what is resilient um, in terms of having a champion in place? So I think champion is kind of a good example. You could say, you know, this scale says that basically the higher in an organization that your champion is, the more resilient you become. So if I'm an organization and I'm saying that my champion is, you know, a part-time employee who's responsible for emergency management and is at a level in the organization where they can't make a lot of decisions... You know, obviously, that's kind of a good indication that you need to improve in that area. But by looking at some of the documentation and doctrine associated with this, we can say, oh, okay, well, if I have a champion who is at the level of a vice president, you know, that's high enough to be able to make significant change in an organization. And if I work towards that, then that will help me become more resilient. So the part two of this is really kind of taking the self-assessment where you're looking at the documentation and saying, this sounds like where my organization is now, and comparing that to kind of some of the other doctrine we have in place and saying that this is what we think an organization that's resilient should be. And, you know, if that's the case, then that comes up with some pretty clear metrics and outputs and action items that you can actually follow to become more resilient over time.
0: Where can we go to find out more?
2: So we're going to be posting this on our website, which is www.callion.com em. And then as well, I'm going to be putting it out on LinkedIn and hopefully working with some organizations like IEM Canada or CRHNet and making this readily available to people in the field. So hopefully over time, you know, I came up with those specific metrics for resilience, but I'd really like to see, you know, doing a Google image search for this and seeing, you know, dozens of different kind of approaches and variations to this where people have taken this and made it their own and made it useful for them.
0: Doug Grant, thank you for the work that you're doing, and thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. You go, before you go, uh, I would just like to ask a question that was asked to us in school as well. Uh, what does resilience mean to you?
2: <laughs> I would say in broad terms, resilience to me means that an organization can leverage all of the different functions and aspects it has in place effectively during an emergency or disruption, and can undertake actions in advance that allows all of those different functions to operate together smoothly, so that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
1: Well, Grayson, that sounds like you guys had a really uh, interesting conversation there.
0: Yeah, I, I really think this is a useful tool and it does begin to operationalize this concept. Uh, I saw in this model shades of ICS, so the command and control and how you respond and how you're organized. Um, And it really is a piece that's been missing in the organizational view of resilience.
1: Yeah and now certainly we know that Uh, there's been lots of models, lots of tools developed over the years to try and gauge resiliency, Um, looking at community resiliency, organizational resiliency, personal resiliency. Um, It's interesting that we're trying to quantify some of these things. And I think it's a, it's a useful approach. It forces us to, to try and measure, uh, you know, a very difficult phenomenon to measure. But the question always is, you know, can you really assign numerical values
0: to these very qualitative type indicators? I agree. I think it is rather flexible. Uh, but I, every time I, I see numbers assigned to something that is essentially qualitative, I get a little bit worried that this is going to be a report on someone's desk that says we are 70% resilient, and that wouldn't be an accurate representation. So I hope the tool doesn't get misused in that way.
1: Now, it is interesting The UNISDR has provided some guidance on uh, how to... Look at and how to understand disaster resilient communities, and their big take home as well is that each community is unique. They offer a few different grading rubrics that you can use, um, and and some kind of thematic analysis that you can use to try and understand resilience. So I think this is still very much a work in progress, but uh, I think it it is important work. And and if we can't measure something, uh, how do we know if we're making any progress?
0: And on that, I believe you read an article to that effect.
1: Yeah, I mean when we look at these scores, just like when you're trying to score anything, whether it be um, in engineering or in social sciences, validating a predictive score is always the hardest part. And how do you know that the value that you have actually represents something meaningful? And and how do we know we're not just making ourselves feel better by having a bunch of uh, checklists filled out, like like you alluded to? Uh, one author attempted to try and answer this question. Um, it's uh, Sh- Sharif and colleagues who's actually done a few papers on this similar uh, concept, but we're going to review one from 2016 called On the Suitability of Assessment Tools for Guiding Communities Towards Disaster Resilience. And this was published in the International Journal of Disaster Risk Reduction. And essentially, the authors looked at 36 of these Uh, resilience assessment tools and tried to grade them uh, against four key measures and and they really dug deep uh, into the literature to try and suss out what exactly resilience is um, and and what the different elements are but they kind of used four key measures looking at preparation and planning, uh, the ability to absorb an impact or absorb a shock, um, the ability to recover, and the ability then to adapt and we know that of course that's kind of the shift is when it's not just necessarily returning to your baseline, but it's returning to what a new normal is and hopefully a better normal. Uh, they looked at five different domains, environmental, social, economic, physical, and institutional, and then used a, a series of different criteria to build a little rubric to grade uh, these 36 tools um, and to see how many of them uh, you know, encompassed a, a comprehensive approach. Now of these 36 tools, it's interesting, some of them were Canadian, but they really addressed a broad Broad array of uh, different purposes. Some of them were looking at uh, resilience to tsunamis. Some of them were looking at resilience to earthquakes or an all-hazards approach. Uh, Some were looking at uh, local authorities and businesses. Others were looking more at communities. So I think it's a very broad group of kind of heterogeneous uh, tools, which uh, means that I think it's a, a. a nice comprehensive way to look at these as, as a bundle. And the term they use is CDRs, community, uh, pardon me, CRAs, uh, Community Resilience Assessments. So <clears throat> going through the the list of them um, they found that the majority of them did a really good job at the baseline assessment part. So that means uh, assessing how well you have planning and preparedness, how well you have uh, kind of articulated some sort of response to a disaster. They did a, a less better job in aggregate at looking at the dynamic parts of response, um, things like creativity, social learning. And as you guys mentioned in your in your interview, how do you know that you've actually learned a lesson uh, moving from that lessons identified to lessons learned Um speed of recovery was another factor that was uh, um, evaluated. Um, the economic analysis, so savings and recovery time and budgets that were attributable to planning and absorption of shocks and then um, also loss estimation models, so how accurately organizations can predict what a, uh, an impact would be from, from whatever hazard you're, you're trying to um, evaluate. So of the 36 tools uh, that were addressed, um, the average uh, overall for each category was quite low, shockingly low in terms of how many actually complied with what the authors thought were, were the best tool um, or the best uh, concept to evaluate. So 37% evaluated uh planning and preparedness, 29 talked about the ability to absorb an impact, 34% um, mentioned recovery, and uh, 31% uh, discussed or, or addressed adaptability. Um, so overall, it's 33% of them were compliant with what the authors thought were the best tool. Now there's quite a few limitations to this study. I mean, on the one hand, it's a little bit ironic that we're using um, uh, a artificially derived uh, rubric to evaluate artificially derived rubrics <laughs> and as I uh, you know read through this paper it's very apparent there's many ways to quote unquote make a tool uh, some tools were developed just by expert consensus some of them were um, uh, apparently you know in grounded theory and, and using the literature to kind of inform their tools some were uh, based from uh, focus groups and actual stakeholder consultations and various rounds of, of consultation to try and find consensus um, the individual paper here, it looks like, was basically the, the main author who evaluated the tools um, independently and then. Uh, supposedly to increase the reliability, did it a second time, um, but there was no real uh, trying attempt at multiple authors or multiple um, experts and trying to uh, find consensus. So certainly it is kind of limited. It's um, you know one person's uh, objective assessment. But interestingly, the uh, highest performing risk assessment tool was one of the tsunami uh, preparedness tools. So um, it's uh, kind of a long acronym, but USIO. TWT, it's the US Indian Ocean Tsunami Warning System program, um, scored the highest and actually. Uh, it- addressed the majority of the domains that the authors thought were important but even that was just a little bit over 50% and that was one of the highest performing uh, scores. Other ones which are notable are the CART score that's uh, developed by University of Oklahoma. Um, it was in the 30% range um, and there was others. The Canadian one unfortunately did not perform very well uh, but interesting if you read the paper uh, you can see all the different scores and how they uh, how they graded.
0: So with all these programs and tools out there, and with Doug's tool not quite uh, ready to publish, where do you turn? So we took a look at uh, a program that might be useful to you from Public Safety Canada. It's called the Regional Resilience Assessment Program, and it's composed of three main tools. A critical infrastructure resilience tool. So this is an on-site survey-based tool that measures the resilience of a facility, so very much a structural Uh, resilience tool. Uh, The Critical Infrastructure Multimedia tool, which is a multi-platform software tool that uh, makes an interactive visual guide of critical infrastructure in a facility and it uses some fancy spherical photography to do that. And the Canadian Cyber Resilience Review, so this is an on-site survey-based tool that measures cybersecurity posture of an organization. Uh, Now, while this regional resilience assessment program is primarily focused towards critical infrastructure agencies, there are 10 areas of critical infrastructure in Canada and they can be pretty broad. So health as a piece of critical infrastructure can cover all sorts of agencies. So check this tool out. It might be the one for you. Yeah, I think it's a useful program,
1: especially if you are a smaller um, organization or, for example, you have critical infrastructure in your community and you're looking for an objective way to get an external uh, opinion on your level of resiliency. I think it's a a neat program. My understanding is it's free of cost um, and you can just contact your local Public Safety Canada contact to find out more details.
0: And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Doug Grant for sharing his time and expertise with us on the topic of organizational resilience.
1: Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic
0: Podcast production.
1: A proud partner of IAEM Canada the
0: international association of emergency managers as always epic podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the em professional and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of for more information about the show or the people on it visit our website at
1: epicpodcast.ca or follow us on twitter by searching epic podcast
0: and finally a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you our listeners Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast. Current. Relevant. Canadian.